Well, good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ Sunday morning Bible study. It doesn't look like morning because this is a pre-recorded Bible class as uh, I'm planning to be out of town. When you are watching this, I will be at uh, WCYC, Wisconsin Christian Youth Camp, where I will be helping to um, lead a session of uh, middle schoolers. Uh, as they learn more about Jesus and more about God's Word. So I'm uh, glad that you could join us for this study. We are going to be concluding the Gospel of John in this lesson today, all these many months that we have worked through this Gospel. Uh, and here we are at uh, chapter 21, the finale. And last week we talked about the resurrection uh, we went through the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and in all of these things, John keeps a consistent theme. John keeps a consistent theme about the nature of Jesus Christ. Others have written biographies. John is writing something deeper. He is trying to convince us that Jesus is who he says he is. And we're going to continue and see how this theme wraps up. Because you may ask yourself, okay, as we read this, what's the point? And obviously there is this theme of, of the nature of Christ, but there's so much more involved and there's so much more to consider. Uh, and John wraps it up so beautifully. Uh, I will note the, the final verses of chapter 20, I want to reiterate, because he talks about, uh, he, he describes the scene where Jesus appears to Thomas. And we call him Doubting Thomas, and that's really not fair, because Jesus appeared to the disciples and he showed them the hands and he showed them the scar in his side and they were able to see and recognize him and believe in who he was. And uh, then Thomas says, well, I want to see the same thing. I'm not going to believe it till I see it too. And we take that to be a lack of faith. But he's not asking for anything that the other disciples weren't given. And he's not asking for anything that Jesus wasn't willing to give. Because Jesus does appear and he does show, them, he, show him these things and he does believe. And Jesus makes this statement, which leads us to be judgmental of Thomas when he says in chapter 20, in verse 29, that you've seen me and you believe, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. But John uses that to state what he does in 30 and 31. He says, Jesus did many other signs that are performed in the presence of his disciples, which I haven't written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is writing at a time long after the life of Christ. Those who are reading this were not perhaps eyewitnesses to Jesus. Very likely that they weren't. We're talking about some 60 years perhaps have gone by since Christ ascended to be with uh, God the Father. And so John is writing to people who were not eyewitnesses. They're in the same position as Thomas was in. We are in the same position Thomas was in. Would you believe? If you did not read these words of eyewitnesses and read their accounts that John has provided, I don't know that we would. And so we really have a lot in common with Thomas. And I want to point out verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20 and reiterate them as we move on. Moving into chapter 21, we have this. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that would include the author here, uh, John and his brother James, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Yeah, now remember, uh, this was a unique time for the disciples because Jesus died 
He's been buried. Then the body is gone. He manifests himself. They see him. But there's this period of time where they're kind of wondering what's next, what to do. Jesus is coming and going. And so Peter says, you know what? I'm going to go fishing. That's what Peter did. They're kind of getting back to their lives a little bit, unsure of how to proceed. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll come with you also. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So they're fishing at night. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Again, could this be the Holy Spirit uh, concealing something in their mind, perhaps, but also they're, they're a ways off, so they may not recognize him. Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered, no. And he said to them, cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will catch, find a catch, uh, excuse me, you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. So there's this kind of miraculous thing where Jesus says, why don't you try on the other side of the boat? You'll, you'll catch some fish. Again, Jesus revealing himself and his authority by this supernatural kind of, uh, of power, this perception that they did not possess. So they can't haul it in for the great number of fish. Verse 7, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, so this is John again speaking to Peter, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Peter's always the first one. He's always the one jumping. He has that spirit of desire to be near Jesus. Well, we all should have that desire. We're kind of critical of Peter because he does some things that we think probably talks and acts before he really thinks. But sometimes our love for Christ requires that we have that kind of tenacity. And Peter had that. So he jumps into the water. And, uh, and, but the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So they've got to haul this thing in. Simon, Peter, he's just going to swim out there, but the rest of them are dragging this net in. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. There's some interesting allegory here that I don't think would be overthinking the passage to see both how Jesus directs and provides for us to bring in uh, a catch. Because remember, he told them when he called them, uh, they're fishermen. He said, you come with me, I'll make you fishers of men. I'll have you casting your nets out onto the water and bringing in a return, bringing in souls that are hungry, that are looking for salvation through Christ. And so... I think there is some allegory here because Jesus provides that direction. And he says, I want you to bring that to me. Bring in the fish that you've caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And here we have now a passage dealing with the provision that Christ offers us. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we have the first time with everybody except Thomas, the second time with everybody including Thomas, and now this manifestation on the sea with the catch of fish. 
So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said this to him the third time. You know, if I asked my wife if she loved me and she gave me an answer in the affirmative and I continued to persist, she might get a little bit irritated that I'm not believing her, that what she's saying must not be good enough. Uh, Jesus is persisting here with Simon. He's making a point. He's making a point here to ask this question, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he'd asked him a third time. Another reason he might have been grieved there's something special about that, that set of three. Numbers have significance to Jewish people and in Semitic cultures. Remember, Peter denied Christ three times. And now Jesus is asking him to affirm his love three times. So he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So the theme of this interaction is about evangelism. Jesus is preparing them for what he is calling them to, which is to go into the world, to share this gospel message, to tell others about Jesus that they may believe. And he does that, I think he's demonstrating that here with the catch of fish, that Jesus directs our path. He tells us where to cast our nets. We do so and we trust that the Lord will provide. When we go our own way, we oftentimes fail, but with Christ we succeed. And he emphasizes with Peter that part of caring for one another, their community of, of the disciples, which would have been uh, 11 at this point, because Judas is no longer with us, as we know from other accounts. But part of caring for that community is to have love. It all starts with love. People talk a lot about love and, and the argument back, if there is such an argument. People say, well, now wait a minute. Don't forget about the law. Don't forget about the law. You know, we have rules. Yes, there is call, there's a call to obedience in Scripture, certainly. But people try to paint the picture that the God of the Old Testament is the God of law and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. Uh, there's no, God doesn't have split personalities. He didn't just change his attitude. Um, between Malachi and, and, uh, and Matthew. No, God's the same. Look at the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me, no idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not lie, do not covet. Can you think of any one of those that we would commit, that we would act on if we had love for one another or for God. And remember what Jesus says when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God and love others. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. There is nothing revealed in the law, nothing revealed by the prophets that isn't grounded in love for God is love. Let's not forget that. That's wrapped up in this theme that John is trying to show us. And so he ties together this idea that he's going to direct our path to yield results and that at the core of that, as he talks to Peter here, is love. If you love Jesus, you will love one another. Remember 
Go back a few weeks. Remember that he's praying in the garden. He's talking to his disciples in the moments leading up to his arrest, trial, and execution. And he's saying, God loves me. I love you. Love one another. And how will the world know that we were sent by Jesus? If we love one another. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. And when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would, uh, he would glorify God. And when he has, had spoken, he's talking to Peter, he's saying, hey, there's going to come a time in your life where you don't have the choice. You're not going to get to decide your fate. Someone else will do that for you. And John is implying here he was talking about the violent death that all of these disciples, except for John, would meet. History tells us that all of them met a violent end in martyrdom. Now, when he said this, uh, he, now this he said, excuse me, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Ah, Now, we, John uh, is referring to himself here and telling this little story. Jesus says, follow me. Peter is with him. John comes along and Peter says, what about him? You, you said me to follow. He's following. And he said, hey, what he does, he does. And he'll do what I want him to do. That doesn't change what's required of you. Uh, we can look around us and see people both outside of the church and inside of the church going about their, their way as they feel directed. Whether they do that in, the, in a means to glorify God as they best see fit or whether they don't know God at all. Our instruction is the same. Follow him. Follow Jesus. Therefore, uh, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. Only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? So John is clarifying and putting a disclaimer on a rumor that had circulated about him. Interesting that he does this here. And then we have verse 24. And I mentioned this in our uh, How We Got the Bible series, uh, which uh, I hope you're watching. Because these two verses give us an indication that John is not the only author probably at work in this gospel. It's very possible that in many books of our Bible, there was not just one singular author uh, because these things were picked up and transmitted and transferred and passed around and recopied and recopied and recopied. And as the story evolves, notes are made in the margin and conclusions are brought about in these books and these letters. And that was acceptable in their time. So there's nothing about it that should cause us to doubt it. But listen to the wording, and I'll speak more length in that lesson, and you can watch it. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. The pronouns and, and the, uh, the person of that verse changes from the previous. John's writing in kind of a third person, referencing himself, and now someone else comes along here, uh, I believe in what would be the second person, and says, hey, this is the disciple who wrote these things. The one he's talking about, the one whom Jesus loved, the one who the rumor started about, yeah, that's the one who's writing this and testifying to it. And we, whoever might have added this in, know that his testimony is true. 
And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that the, even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. I believe that those last two verses might have been written by somebody else, reiterating the fact that other people have taken to writing uh, the story of Jesus. We have three other books in our Bible, and every other book in our Bible points us to Jesus, informs us of Jesus, teaches us of Jesus. But John has done something unique, and you notice there is no Great Commission here uh, recorded. That's, um, it's done in kind of a more cryptic way when he talks about follow me, but John had no need to do that. That was well known. The Great Commission was well known. The church at the time was trying to fulfill that. John has a different purpose. And yes, it's to explain to us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, that he is holy, that he is God. And he uses the words of Christ and the acts of Christ that demonstrate that. We see a lot of miracles. We see a lot of statements of Jesus reiterating this fact. I am the Son of God. God is in me and I am in him. And the transitive property of that divinity comes down to his disciples, which by extension comes to us. If you are in Christ, then that's the same as being in God. And that's the same as having God in you. And this is where, in this book, we find a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit, about the Spirit working, being manifested, being passed down to us, being given to us, the comforter, the paraclete that we read about in chapter 16. We see these things in the Gospel of John. That's why I love John. Because he's trying to get us to understand Jesus wasn't just some man that came and said some wise things. He's not just some healer. He wasn't a social activist. He wasn't a political revolutionary. He was real and he was a man, but more than that, he was God. And the authority that God has comes through Christ. If we believe in him, we believe in the Father. If we have a relationship with him, we have a relationship with the Father. But that's not all. It's not simply about the transitive property of God's divinity through Christ bridging the gap to get to us. That is important. But what's at the heart of that? It's what we've just read. Our call to share the gospel is grounded in love. Everything that we've read these last few chapters with the trial and the death and the burial and the resurrection, all of it's grounded in love. What is the theme of the book of John? One could say it has to do with the divinity of Christ. I think that very much is a strong theme in John's gospel. But I think it's something more than that. I think it's something that's much more foundational. Because if there's no love, none of this matters. Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Hey, you can speak in tongues. You can do all sorts of miraculous things, great wonders. If it doesn't have love at its core, it doesn't matter. It's just noise. It's just noise if it doesn't have love. Go back to chapter 3 in the Gospel of John. And what does he say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the theme. That's the story. That's what makes John's gospel so beautiful. 